Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Georgia native and Best Americana Album Grammy nominee, Brent Cobb. The self-described songwriter-singer joins us to chat about his dual career as an artist and as a behind-the-scenes tunesmith for Luke Bryan, Little Big Town, Miranda Lambert, Kenny Chesney, and others. Part one. Well, Scott, as we sit here in Songcraft World Headquarters, we are basically surrounded by guitars. Basically, there's some guitars on one yeah. of the walls near They're us. Yeah. hanging on your walls. And, right. And you and I both play guitar. Correct. Um, Although I like to say I really play the radio. <laughs> <laughs> you got a face Ooh. for radio. Oh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, both of us play. Uh, but I, when I look at our music listening interests, I would say that we listen to guitar-driven music more than guitar-focused music. Does that make sense? Like we're not necessarily drawn to guitar theatrics? Exactly. Like yeah. I would listen to ACDC before I would listen to, say, Joe Satriani. Right. And who's while, an amazing guitar player. Yeah, but. absolutely. And and I love Jimi Hendrix, uh, but I never need to hear Jimi Hendrix again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I think there's a difference between, you know, not just a guitar fan, but even a guitar player and a guitar enthusiast. Okay. And I think you can you can really tell in kind of like listening tastes, right? Um, and I I also kind of notice that when someone comes up to after I've maybe played somewhere or something, and they know too much about my guitar, right? More than you, probably. I, st- I start to get uncomfortable, right? You know, <laughs> because I know I'm not going to be able to like yeah finish the conversation. Hey, is that a 67 or 68 J50? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah, hey, that's a nice J one eighty five you got there. That's that's good. That is what I have. Gibson J one eighty five. So hey, it's a nice J one eighty five you got there. I'm like, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna know what kind of inlay it has. Right. You went with the one with the banded neck. Yeah. Uh yeah. <laughs> I went with the ivory pegs that came directly from tusks in East African I no. <laughs> I like this guitar. It helps me play my songs. Right, right. What kind of pickup you got in there? <laughs> <laughs> totally. And I it's it's been one of those things where I never mean to like denigrate any kind of music. You know, I, I think all music has great value. Uh, m- most music has great value. <laughs> um, but I, I do kind of get, you know, I, I wish that I liked theatrical music more. And right. I'm not talking about the theater. I'm talking about guitar theatrics. Yeah. Yeah. Chicken foot. You know, maybe this is uh, this is potentially like a sign of getting older not that i am getting older but uh i love like gypsy jazz which is very guitar driven it's very technical and it's fairly theatrical um but there's something about that that's just all about precision and speed that i like whereas like with rock guitar i'm not so much at some point it just kind of sounds like wailing and it be- yeah. it becomes a little grating you know i think well there's a point at which a guitar becomes so loud it's quiet <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it Go becomes on. so distorted that it sounds clean right. again you know 
<laughs> we actually had a, a bandmate that we played with in high school that that would, his guitar sound was so compressed, yeah, and so distorted, right, that it got wimpier and wimpier as, <laughs> as it went along. Yeah, whether he barely touched a note or played a full on just Pete Townsend windmill power chord, it it was the same. Yeah, volume. it just sounded like. totally which was by design right (laughs) um who would you say is the greatest guitar player that you genuinely enjoy listening to um i I would say probably just because i i've just finished talking about gypsy jazz but one of our former uh songcraft guests john jorgensen yeah it's a great gypsy jazz player in the django reinhardt mold uh and you know Django Reinhardt's great. I mean, he's an innovator. He he basically created the entire genre. Very similar feelings about him that I have about Robert Johnson, mm-hmm. who, you know, essentially kind of reinvented or, or perfected a certain blues form. I completely admire it. I just have a real hard time when you put on the music and it's like. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So <laughs> anytime somebody can sort of update that and bring yeah. like modern recording, you know, techniques, but still bring the skill. So, yeah, I, I'll say John Jorgensen right now. It, you know, my mind will change, uh, you know, every day because yeah. it depends on what mood I'm in. But I think he's fabulous. Now, I, I first of all, he's great as, as well. Um, I, I, I love Eric Clapton. Right. Um, and I think maybe it's because Eric Clapton, his music is not built around um, right. guitar acrobatics. He's got the slow hand. Yeah, exactly. It's it's songs, and it's also you know it's kind of a, a tone and vibe thing. Right. Um, and you you know you don't really see even when you watch live stuff. I mean, he he kind of goes off in his own way. Right. But it's not like in the super. He's not like tapping. Yeah. Um, right. Which, by the way, I'm also a huge Eddie Van Halen fan. Sure. And somehow he's sort of like. He's got like Keith Richards energy, you know, he's <laughs> right. got, like gives me like Keith Richards vibes, like super swaggy and like, like maybe he's about to fall off stage. Right. But he's a total technician. Yeah. Uh, totally. Or was, you know, rest in peace. But, uh, you know, his, his playing was technically perfect and right. innovative and everything else, but he still managed to have the swagger about it all. Yeah. I think to really get back to the heart of what you were saying, I remember in college, uh, Natalie Merchant had an album called Tiger Lily. Oh, yeah. And I don't remember the name of the woman who played lead guitar on that record. If I uh, was closer to my CDs, that's right. I am getting (laughs) old. Uh, I would just pull it out and, and look up her name. But I remember... It's striking me that there were places on that album where I thought, why didn't the guitar player play a lick there? And it it was sort of an awakening. Like, you know what? If you're good, um, you don't have to play a lick in every space. Right. You know, you hold back. I mean, that's kind of the the thing of of honing your craft and being a great guitar player and serving the song. Like, this song doesn't have to be just an orgy of, like, guitar licks. You know, (laughs) it can just be, oh, I'm going to throw in a few really tasty licks here and there it's the blues traveler effect, right? Like the guy in blues traveler is probably the greatest harmonica player that ever lived. Yeah. I wouldn't dispute that Right, guy. You don't need to prove it to us on every song, you know, like, <laughs> right. like you're amazing. We right. get it. <laughs> you know, and, and none of this is to, you know, bash on, you know, guitar acrobatics. I mean, well, a little bit. Well, it's just, it's, it's a matter of preference. Yeah. Um, because I, you know, you are talking about people that have devoted their lives to a craft and have become insanely good at it. Right. Um, but I think just I'm I'm choosing, you know, to listen to Angus Young and Malcolm Young. Right. Uh, uh, underappreciated rhythm focus of ACDC. But uh, I, I'm choosing to listen to those guys before Steve Vai. Yeah. Who's a tremendous guitar player. 
Um, but it's just, you know, and again, we'll probably get emails and somebody's like, you know, you're an idiot. And I'm like, I'll wear that. That's fine. <laughs> right. Well, you know what it is? It's kind of like you ever had that thing where there's somebody that, you know, that maybe like a friend or whatever, and you know, maybe you've known them for a while and somebody has a pool party and like this dude like takes his shirt off and you're like, Whoa, that guy's ripped. Right. Like I had no idea right. versus the guy who maybe is equally ripped, but like he wanted you to know that he he's was ripped. always, he's always wearing shirt sleeveless shirts yeah. or like mesh shirts or no shirt and a gold chain. <laughs> like he really wants you to know like, Hey, I'm ripped. And you know, it's like cooler when the guy takes his shirt off and he's super ripped and you never knew for two years, it's kind of the same thing. Like when a guitar player, you hear, you know, 10 songs the person did. And then suddenly they like rip into something on one song and yeah, you're like, totally. Whoa, you're capable of that. And you've been holding back. Amazing. Now I'm a little uncomfortable and I feel like I should put my shirt back on. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was shocked, you know, in a good way when you just took it off and <laughs> good job being ripped, man. But, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, there's a reason we don't do these on camera. <laughs> Part two. Georgia native Brent Cobb began his music career in Los Angeles, working with his cousin Dave Cobb and Shooter Jennings. He later found himself in Nashville, where he landed a staff songwriting deal and started getting his songs recorded by artists such as Luke Bryan, Little Big Town, Miranda Lambert, Kenny Chesney, and many others. He eventually signed an artist deal with the Electra Records imprint Low Country Sound, scoring a top 20 country album with Shine On, Rainy Day. The LP earned a Grammy nomination for Best Americana Album. His follow-up release, Providence Canyon, earned Brent a spot touring with Chris Stapleton. His most recent release, Keep Em On They Toes, marks his return to Georgia and his most personal album to date. We recently caught up with Brent via phone where he called in from a semi-quiet corner of a hotel hallway at Disney World where he was vacationing with his family. Brent, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, man. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to speak with you. Um, you know, I want to get into your, your early years. I want to kind of get into the development of your career and your songwriting. But before we do, um, your most recent album, Keep Em On They Toes, uh, came out just a few months back. And you said about that album, my last couple of albums have been about people and places. And I wanted this album to be about thoughts and feelings. And I... That stuck out to me because it, it suggested kind of a different approach even to the, the songwriting process. And I'd like to hear a bit more about what you mean by that. Well, uh, I appreciate you noticing that first. <laughs> and, uh, I you know, the last couple were sort of to set up um, maybe a foundation, a visual foundation of who I was and where I was from. and uh, And then each album that I make, is sort of even even if it's subconscious uh most of the time is for my children really hmm. and um and so they can sort of see the pic this whole entire picture of who I am yeah you know even if something were to happen to me someday and I wasn't around they can listen to all of these albums and get an idea of who I was or who I am and so this one is more so they know well here's where I'm from channel rainy day album and here's some of the characters i knew along the way providence canyon album and then keep them on their toes is this is what daddy was thinking about huh. and uh it, it's and that's sort of what i mean you know these are these are what i was 
this is what I was feeling when I was thinking about whatever this is. Yeah. So it's almost kind of uh, a bit of a transition from like storytelling to kind of more uh, opening up your own internal thoughts in, in a way. Sure. I think it's more statements than, mm. than it is uh, a story on, on a lot of these. And I, and I try to tell them, and even the, the, the statements I try to tell in a way that is story uh, driven that sort of comes from that angle. Right. Sure. Um, well, as I understand it, you were raised in Ellaville, Georgia, and I'd love to get a, a sense of, uh, you know, you talk a lot in your, in your music about home and, and a sense of belonging and, and, you know, kind of that, that longing to, to, to be where you belong, you know, where, where you come from. Um, so I'd, I'd love to hear a bit about, uh, your childhood and, and growing up in Ellaville and what it was about that community that kind of shaped you into the, the person that you became. Sure. I, uh, from rural South Georgia, I always say I was born in Americas. Um, I grew up in Ellaville and I was raised in Richland, <laughs> which is where my dad is from. Right. All rural Georgia. It's about 10 uh, minutes from Plains, Georgia, all of these places. Plains, Georgia, the home of Jimmy Carter. Right. And uh, so, you know, where I grew up was, was very similar to sort of that, that Mayberry vibe. And, uh, you know, we'd eat honeysuckles in the springtime and, and have a lot of bonfires in the, in the fall. Um, everybody knows everybody. Um, personally, I was raised in a single wide trailer until I was 10 and we graduated to a double wide. And then <laughs> right. we, uh, and then when I was around 14 or 15, we, uh, got into a little nice little brick home and I've watched both my parents, you know, my dad has owned his own appliance repair business for 30 years and my mom went back to school she was a cosmetologist went back to school to be an rn and uh watched them both work really hard to acquire the things that they got all in the meantime my dad also was a musician is a musician and he would work on the weekends performing in in bars uh with he and his brother had a band and so every weekend for a secondary source of income they would play and and they'd open for people like George Jones, Chubby Checker, uh, mm. Dottie West, and uh, I got to meet all these people as a kid and just grow up. You know, the Plains Street Dance was something every year that they would play, and I'd run around the the little uh, town square of Plains, Georgia, and listen to my dad play music and and uh, you know everything about that growing up that experience for me has entirely shaped who I am I guess everybody's does but yeah but I, I think you can really hear it in the way I write I don't really know any other way to write yeah yeah well there's a song uh, called Soapbox on your most recent album that I believe you actually uh, co-wrote with your dad well hot dog your opinion is louder than mine you might wear out my nerves but you ain't changing my mind Hop off the soapbox and get along. Well, there ain't no kitchen fitting all of these cooks. If you're craving bacon, you may get dirty looks. So, damn, suck it up, man. And I'd love to get a sense about 
you know, as you were a kid, obviously you're watching your dad, you know, play in his band, but was he kind of introducing you to, to music and to songwriters that would eventually influence your own instincts as a creative person? For sure. Uh, my dad, I can, uh, vividly remember, we used to listen to a, a, uh, country music program called Rick Jackson's, uh, country classics or something like that every sunday night every sunday evening i think right. it was based out of oklahoma maybe and somehow we picked it up and uh there every show he would have he would have themes and so every sunday we'd sit out there and listen to whatever theme it was for that sunday evening and i can remember sitting out there and he had a songwriter theme one night and he played a bunch of tom t hall and uh he played a bunch of dolly parton course merle haggard and uh on that songwriter theme night, I can vividly remember my dad. They, the guy said, next up, we got Mac Davis, who's a songwriter, songwriter. And this is Texas in my rear view. And, uh, and he said, my dad told me, he said, buddy, if you want to be a songwriter, and I'm, I'm probably 12 at this time. Right. He goes, uh, this is who you need to listen to. This is Mac Davis. And, uh, and we listened. I, can rem- I recall that song so well from that moment and i've listened to it a bunch over the years but i can even i can remember that very first time i ever heard that and thought of it in a capacity of okay this is a songwriter not just a singer you know this is a songwriter singer yeah and uh that that song specifically was was one of the first that i knew i was listening to a songwriter you mm. know yeah yeah uh, well, I understand that you kind of began your uh, musical life, at least in terms of recording, um, not in Georgia or in Nashville, but uh, in Los Angeles. And, you know, as a as a Tennessee native who who lives in Los Angeles, I understand the uh, the cultural shift of <laughs> moving from uh, from the south to to L.A. But talk a bit about um, what pulled you out to California and in what ways just getting into a new environment and, and, you know, getting away from where you had grown up kind of began to change perhaps even the way that you approach music or gave you the opportunity to, you know, bring in some different influences. Well, it's a, a little bit of a long story. I'll try to shorten it. But when I was 17, I met Dave Cobb, who's a, everybody knows as a wonderful producer now. Mm-hmm. He was producing then too, but we didn't know each other. And uh, I was still living in Georgia my great aunt Christine passed away. I had to be a pallbearer in her funeral, and that was his grandmother. Hmm. And so he he was in Georgia for the funeral. And at this funeral, we hear it kind of because we're all musical in our family. And we hear that this cousin of ours is a, a record, a big time LA record producer. Right. <laughs> and right. Uh, and so I was skeptical and and young and arrogant Southern young man. And uh, and so I asked him after the funeral, sort of in an arrogant way, what he had produced. And I said, I hear you're a big record producer. What have you produced? And uh, he said, Shooter Jennings, hmm. and I put the O back in country. Right. And that's that's all we had been listening to. Yeah. And uh, me and my friends, and we knew that it was made in California, and it and it felt like California. It felt different than what we had heard on country radio. Hmm. And um, so when he told me this, it blew my mind. And uh, shamelessly, I gave him a little acoustic demo of songs that I had been writing since I was probably 14. I had just made this little 
acoustic demo. And a couple of days later, he called me at the, I was still living with my folks, and called the house phone and uh, said that he had shooters sitting there with him and they wanted to bring me to LA and make a record. And wow. so that was the initial thing that got me. I, I didn't have a whole lot of ambition at 17. I was in a technical college and wasn't doing real good. <laughs> I was fixing right. to severely disappoint my folks. And uh, so that's that's what really pushed me in that direction in the beginning. And so mm -hmm. I started going to L.A. I went back and forth for about a year and a half and um, met a ton of characters, Leroy Powell and uh, Rowdy Jason Cope and Shooter, <laughs> of course, and Chris Powell and, and all these, these guys and Sally J., uh, from Cartersville, Georgia, and her mama, she was out there, they, and, and they, they were, they're from Georgia, and the first time they'd heard a southern accent in forever was when I came out there, and her <laughs> mama, like, cooked me a bunch of biscuits and stuff, and it was awesome. <laughs> right. And, uh, but, you know, as far as the music goes, I didn't know that there was another way to do country music, and I'm, you know, I'm just inherently country i'm just from there i inherited it and i'm born and raised there and i can't help it so i'm gonna make country music but i didn't know that there was another way to do it hmm. other than nashville way and yeah. like well you want something that makes money you go to nashville and you do it that way but see when i went to la there are all these people from north carolina and from georgia and texas and all these places that they were also making country music but it was way cooler hmm. than what was coming out of nashville to me Right. And uh but I didn't know and so that heavily influenced you know, we started listening to Towns Van Zant. I'd never been exposed to Towns Van Zant. Hmm. Uh digging way into that Whalen live record, um, Blaze Foley. Just all kind of stuff that I don't know that I would have been exposed to had I gone to Nashville first. Yeah. So musically speaking and the people that I was hanging around they heavily influenced the musical direction and just, just what became my influences as albums, you know? Yeah. Living, uh, I can remember um, the first time, my first weekend actually living in L.A., and we all got in this big limousine. With uh, I was with my, my brand-new roommate who I never met. <laughs> we was with he and his girlfriend and a pile of folks I didn't know. We got in this limousine and we went to some beach out there. I can't remember now. And um, and I got it. I'm I'm young, man. I'm like 18 years old. And I get into a conversation with about God with someone. Right. And where I'm from, everybody talks about God. You believe in God or you don't. <laughs> you believe right. in God or you can go to hell. <laughs> but, uh, and so I get in a conversation and and I'm just getting my ass handed to me. Right. <laughs> and uh and I had never experienced that before, you know? Mm. And uh and so that kind of thing made me think bigger. It made me think it's not just speaking to a a mirrored version, a reflection of who I am, you know, somebody who grew up mm. completely different than I did. Yeah. And you know, it scared me at first. Now I'm so thankful that I experienced life like that is life you know and, yeah but that kind of stuff would happen or or uh i i was only lived there for six months i went back and forth for a year and a half and in six months i was uh i was almost shot in a drive-by shooting <laughs> I, uh there was as i did tried to carjack me on a tuesday morning at about nine o'clock in the morning Jeez. and uh and there was an earthquake 
and it only rained one time. And so <laughs> all of these <laughs> all of these things completely made me not just uh, the songwriter that I have become, but also just the person that I am now, you know, just yeah. Again, in every way possible, it has all completely influenced me. Hmm. Well, another uh, song on your most recent record is Good Times and Good Love, which is one that you co-wrote with Luke Bryan. Good times and good love don't last forever. And that's too bad because the two things I really like. Good times even better So let's get together and make some good love last all night I understand that, that Luke um, was the person who kind of suggested that you go to Nashville and I'd love to hear how the two of you first connected to begin with and, and how you decided to take that advice and, and make the leap and head to Music City. Well, so we made that album, Dave and Shooter and myself, and then, again, I was going back and forth from L.A. to Georgia, and I was playing in a cover band at that time, and somehow we got a couple of offers to go open some shows for Luke, and this is while he's on his rise. And, uh, you know, he's playing decent-sized clubs, <clears throat> selling them out, but he's not the superstar that he is now. And right. uh, at one of these shows my best friend and at the time bass player gave him a copy of that album I had just made and uh, I was too cool and just kind of intimidated I didn't, and I didn't want to bug the guy and, but <laughs> Sean didn't care, my buddy didn't care he was like no he's got to have it yeah. so he gave him this, this album and uh, a couple of days later he started calling and uh, the whole time I was going back and forth to LA Luke was saying man I think I really think you need to come to Nashville. And so as uh, I wound up going there the week that he made his Grand Ole Opry debut. Hmm. And I stayed, he invited me to stay at he and his wife's house and took me around to all kind of publishers and record labels and booking agents and that sort of thing. And, and I didn't immediately take it as advice, but I, uh, instead I moved, I went ahead and moved to L.A., Hmm. and for those six months and then right. after six months of no rain and all the other stuff i said you know what maybe nashville isn't a bad idea hmm. and so and and by the time i got to la and i actually moved there the iron that was hot when i first started going out there was not as hot and there wasn't as much going on for me in la and at this time there was more going on it seemed like more opportunities maybe for me personally um, if I moved to Nashville. And yeah. so that's why I made that choice. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you arrived in Nashville, um, you ultimately landed a publishing deal. I'm sure it, it took a minute to, to get all that lined up and to you know get yourself on, on the track of being a professional songwriter. Um, but you, you got a publishing deal with Carnival Music and you started getting some of your songs recorded by... Um, other artists talk a little bit about that first you know few months or first year in Nashville and how you kind of made your way landed that deal and then you know what your your first real cut was 
Okay, so the that that first trip I took to Nashville with Luke, he introduced me to uh, a guy named Aaron Tannenbaum and a guy named Pete Olson, and they were one was a manager and one was a booking agent, and um, I stayed in touch with both of them even when I went to L.A. Hmm. and um, and so then when I moved to Nashville in March of '08, I gave Aaron a call and I would just call them every now and again just to you know just to kind of ask if I'm I was working at Walgreens and you know questioning every day have I done what I should be doing and so I'd call them just to kind of bounce ideas off of and yeah. get their input and so Aaron said man I, I think you need we need to see if we can uh, shop you around and just introduce you to some some publishers and see if they'd be interested and so that's how that conversation carnival was the first place we went to hmm. and we went to maybe four or five of them it always helps if you have somebody that's on the inside that believes in you and is willing to take you into one of those places and go hey you need to check this writer out you know and yeah. uh, and that's what exactly what aaron did for me and um again i was i was so young and and really i was i was uh I don't know what the right word is right now, but I, I don't know that I believed in myself as much as I just, it made me, I, I pretended to be arrogant, I think. <laughs> and so I can remember walking in my first day to a carnival and I shook Matthew Miller's hand. He used to be the plugger there. And uh, I said, I just want to let you know you're about to hear some of the best songs you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he said, all right then. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, we met and then I didn't sign a deal with him for a year, but he's who ultimately wound up signing me to that deal. Right before I signed the deal with Carvel, Dave had come to town to record a album with the Oak Ridge Boys, hmm. and Dave was still living in L.A. at the time, and uh, they were recording over at the old Hill Hillbilly Central Studios where uh, Waylon and them and and uh, Willie and uh, Tom Paul Glazier recorded the Outlaws album, right and. Uh, Dave had given um, one of the members of the Oak Ridge Boys this song that I wrote when I was 17 called Hold Me Closely. And it's sort of a gospel, lends itself to a gospel song. And they just really loved that song. And that was the first cut I ever had as a songwriter. So hold me closely Hold me softly Don't let me Once you get in with a with a publisher, I told them I wanted to write. The whole name of the game in Nashville is to co-write, and it's a bunch, you write with a bunch of other writers that also are new and have publishing deals, and you'll write with some more veteran type writers that have been around for a while. And um, you know, I wanted to just write. I didn't even know it was a thing you could do. And so hmm. when I got the deal. I just told them to just book me. I wanted to write doubles and triples. I wanted to write with anybody who'd want to write with me. I wrote around the clock. I'd write, I'd wake up in the morning and write by myself for a couple hours. And then I'd go in and write with 
a co-writer that they booked me with, and then that afternoon I'd write with another person they booked me with, and that evening I'd get back to the house and I'd write by myself again for a couple hours before bed. Yeah. And um, I just, and that's the way, so out of that it betters your odds of getting cuts. And yeah. so um, <clears throat> I can remember after I made my first demo through as a songwriter, because you go in and after a few months you kind of, you and your, publisher may pick out five of what may you know what are your the best songs that you've written in the last couple months and right. go in the studio and you record a little pitch cd to to uh shop around to see if any artists or a and r people are willing to try to get it cut for you and um luke actually texted me i was on the way to go open a show for josh turner in billings montana and he said do you got any songs that i could drink whiskey to <laughs> and uh, and I said, well, I could drink whiskey to all of these. And I just sent him all six songs. I, <laughs> but right. that's because I didn't know. Apparently, it's a little more direct. And, like, you're supposed to hone it in and just <laughs> send a couple of them. Right. But I just sent him all. And uh, that's uh, he wound up cutting a song on the, off that first demo session called Tailgate Blues. I catch my buzz in the black of night Where nobody ever goes and a warm wind blows If I lose my cool in the open and it shows That I'm down and I ain't alright I search my soul where there is no moon The trees all cross and are covered in moss If the crickets wanna know then I tell them what I lost Oh, I've got the tailgate blue Again, the more you write, the better your odds, the better you kind of develop your muscle uh, as a songwriter and your craft. And um, the more people you start, you start getting behind you that are sort of, they cheer you on and are willing to work your music. And, you know, I've always just tried to, I don't try to think about, and maybe I should, but I don't try to, I've never tried to think of how to, just succeed i just want to climb the ladder and succeed all i've ever wanted to do is write good songs and make a living doing it hmm. and so yeah. you know i and with that said i've i think i've had somewhere 40 or 50 some odd cuts from major label artists i've never had a single as a songwriter but i have made a living for 15 years doing it and yeah that's all i've kind of ever wanted to do yeah I'd be curious you, you know before you kind of put out your your first sort of major label release in 2016. I mean, that was a, a good five or more year stretch there where you were, like you say, you weren't necessarily getting the singles, but you were getting your songs recorded by, you know, Little Big Town, Kenny Chesney, uh, Miranda Lambert, you know, some of the biggest names in, in country music. Uh, was the idea all along always about being an artist or did during that period did you kind of think you know what maybe maybe i'm just going to be a guy that writes songs for other people and and i don't need to do the artist thing or, or or was the artist thing always kind of you know at the center of it well for me i've always only ever wanted to be a songwriter hmm. I, I i really don't like touring at all um hmm. i do enjoy making albums the trouble with that is it's hard to make an album if you're not going to tour on it it's hard to put anybody to uh it's hard to get anybody to believe in working with you if you don't plan to do any touring either yeah and uh and then for me it's hard to write um the song if the songs that get cut for me are songs that 
I would only write if I'm making an album. Huh. I've never had a song recorded that is a song that I said, oh, I'm going to try to write this for somebody else. They've always been songs that I wrote for myself. Hmm. And I, and it's really hard for me to write those kind of songs if I don't plan to make an album. But <laughs> right. if I'm going to make an album, then I have to tour. And so it's always been such a double-edged sword for me. Mm-hmm. But it's not like that for everybody. Um, there were two years when my daughter was born, I, st- I stopped touring, and I didn't plan to pick pick it back up, and I didn't plan to make any other albums. And, um, man, I didn't get anything accomplished during those two years. And uh, I would go in, and I would try to write for the market, and I just am terrible at it. I have uh-huh. to write for, I don't know, I have to surprise myself, and the only way I can do that is to make albums. So. Yeah, yeah. In 2016, you released your major label debut, uh, Shine On Rainy Day, which, uh, again, was produced by Dave Cobb. And, you know, that record is, um, it's country for sure. Um, It's also kind of soulful. It's got some blues influence. And I even hear some, like, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash kind of stuff on songs like Black Crow. Black Crow laughing on the fish post for as I can tell. There gotta be some behind me, Lord, cause I feel I'm doing well. I ain't been staying up late, making folks wait like I done before. For me to get on track, make up for what I lack. Black Crow, I ain't a joke no more. It's really sort of an eclectic uh, record. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily fit into one neat um, category, but talk about the process of, you know, making that record, knowing that like, okay, this is, this is going to be my statement on a major label where a lot of people are going to kind of meet me for the first time as a, as a writer and artist. Mm-hmm. Well, when we made that album, that was the first album I made after not planning to make another album again. That was right after those two years that I, hmm. that I just didn't plan to ever make another album. And I didn't have a major, I didn't have a deal or anything when we went in. We had, he had put together that Southern Family concept album. And uh, we got in and recorded my song Down Home for that. And Miranda and I wrote a song that she recorded for that. And then while Dave and I were in the studio, I, we just knew we had to make a whole album. And I didn't know how I was going to pay for it. <laughs> and... Uh, I just knew that I needed to make an album, and he wanted to badly, too. And so um, we made it, and it it was after the fact that I realized, so Dave's manager called and said, let's figure out how we can do a deal and put this album out. And uh, so I guess it's hard to answer that question because I didn't go into it going, a lot of people are going to hear that. I went into it going, I don't know that anybody's ever going to hear this. And yeah. so I'm I'm just going to say whatever I if this was the last album that I ever get to make what what how what would I want the songs to be and how would I want to say them and so that's kind of how that's how that album came to be and that's mm-hmm. sort of how I go in every time now you know I go in and go well if this is the this is the last one whether I just hang it up or whether something bad happens or whatever it is it, like what how do I want to leave you know what what would be the last thing I'd want to say yeah, yeah. 
let's talk about the song Digging Holes. You know, I, I think that song, the, I love the lyric on the first chorus. I ought to be working in a coal mine. Lord knows I'm good at digging holes. Well, I ought to be working in a coal mine. Neck deep in black lung soot. Swinging a pick at that mountainside. Halfway to China. I think I would fit right in where the sun don't shine. She's better off alone. Yeah, I ought to be working in a coal mine. Lord knows I'm good at digging holes. It's the type of song that's fun and kind of funny, but it's not corny. Um, and I, I always envy people who can write stuff that is fun and funny, but you know, without veering into like Ray Stevens territory where it's just kind of goofy, <laughs> you know, um, who were some of your, your songwriting influences in terms of being able to, to, you know, focus on songs that are kind of clever and, and, and fun without being, you know, too heavy handed or, or kind of hokey. Well, first of all, it's the people in South Georgia that I grew up around that would have that same sort of um, doomsday sense of humor. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, well, that, you know, that, exactly that. You know, I'm, 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 I ought to be working in a coal mine. Lord knows I'm good at digging myself a hole. And, uh, but then as a craftsman, um, Roger Miller is the only one. He's the, mm -hmm. I, when I moved, and so is Christofferson. Yeah. I moved to when I moved to town. I went to Ernest Tubb Record Shop, and I bought two box sets. One was the Silver Tongue Devil, uh, Chris Christopherson, and then one was the King of the Road, the Genius of Roger Miller. Hmm. And man, I can put that Roger Miller in and the Christopherson as well. But that Roger one, I will find something new every time I listen to it. It's insane, and yeah. uh, he was the master at that. Hmm. And uh, saying something super heavy, but in a light you know in a light way and um that song digging holes is funny because i co that's one of those that i co-wrote during that time where i was just triples a day hmm. and i wrote with this guy named casey wood who's from west virginia and he he was telling a story about his brother how his brother was a songwriter too but that he fixed to move back to uh west virginia and get back into coal mines because He's real good at digging holes. <laughs> and uh, I said, oh, my God, that's the song, man. We just got to write a hole. Because we were also talking about how uh, we weren't on good terms with either of our better halves at that time. Right. And so, we, uh, man, we, once we said that, we wrote it real quick. But, yeah. But yeah. Roger, Roger Miller, though, to long, the, the short answer is Roger Miller. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you're second album for the low country sound imprint was providence canyon um another one that you did with with dave cobb and uh you know i listened to that record and i, I listened to a song like come home soon and it's like a, a longing you know or a real longing for home or or even um you know ain't a road too long it's a similar concept of kind of that that draw that that pull towards home which is this recurring theme Never thought I'd be so far from Georgia Georgia's where I knew I'd always live and die Now here I am traveling through Colorado 
Living on the road Just trying to survive And it's been so long Since I felt at home I've forgotten what it feels like To be alone Anywhere If my woman's scared I might forget who And I understand that you actually did go back to to Georgia after um, releasing that album. And, you know, I'd be curious to to hear in what ways it has impacted your songwriting to be the guy who is longing for home versus the guy who is home. Hmm. Well, I think we may have answered that in the top of this interview, because up until that point, I did miss home and I'd been gone for a while, 12 years or so. Right. And and then when I got back is when I wrote um, Keep Them On The Toes album. So it was more internal. I wasn't really missing anything anymore. So hmm. it's me sitting in the backyard pondering yeah. all that I have learned so far. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, and, and even on, you know, like a song like Ain't A Road Too Long, like the back half of that song, I hear some like, you know, Amorica era Black Crows and some Almond Brothers influences, like kind of bringing in some of those rock, you know, things. And there, there, there seems to be increasingly less and less of a dividing line between like, well, this is country and this is rock or this is folk, you know, it, it all just kind of becomes uh, a, a melting pot. And even though a lot of your music is sort of acoustic uh, based, you know, you're not afraid to rock out <laughs> sometimes uh, as well. Um, do you feel like that that, that has uh, been a challenge at all for you in, in terms of being maybe difficult to, to classify or do you do you like being able to kind of just do your own thing and not worry about labels? Um, maybe it has because sometimes I, you know, I guess it doesn't matter what we do, whether it's music or whatever, appliance repair. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Sometimes I do wonder what the disconnect is. How do, how do, and maybe it's that. Maybe it's because I don't, I haven't quite figured it out. But then on the other side of the coin, like you just said, is it is really nice to not have to worry too much about it. Hmm. And, uh, you know, because some days you're in, in a rock mood and some days you, you know, want to tell a story it's just yeah I, I think it's just human you know what I mean I, I would it'd be so boring if it was the exact same thing although I do try to be sure to pull from the same well even if musically it's more rock you know I, I still I, lyrically I try to always pull from um a descriptive and rich lyrical well hmm. yeah yeah um I saw you uh, open uh, for Chris Stapleton here in Inglewood uh, at the Forum um, a couple years back, I guess. Um, and I'd be curious, you know, as a songwriter, if you're going to go and, and headline your own show, you know, you've got people coming who know your songs, they're going to sing along, you know, they're they're already converts, they're your fans. Uh, if you're going out with an artist like... Stapleton who's playing these you know enormous 
venues, you're going to have folks in the audience that are singing along. You're going to have other folks that, you know, they're like worried about getting their beer in time before the main act comes out. And you got to kind of get them, you know, you got to you got to capture their attention. Um, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on as a songwriter going out there on a stage in front of a huge audience and knowing you got to win these folks over. How does that kind of influence the the process of how you write? In other words, you know, kind of thinking about what what grabs people, what what gets their attention, what engages them. I mean, there's got to be a, almost kind of a for lack of a better term, it's like instant market testing for for your songs to see how the public reacts. Well, lucky for me that Stapleton tour is easier to do that with because they're more open. They know that Stapleton, a lot of them know, you know, that Stapleton is songwriter first. And then it just so happens he's got this huge voice, but they're more willing to listen to an artist like myself whose singing is understated. I've always classified myself as a songwriter singer, not a singer songwriter. I, hmm. I, I sing because it's sometimes the only way I will get my songs heard. <laughs> but, <laughs> right, right. Uh, so it's easier in that respect. Um, also, with that said, uh, so the first tour we did with Stapleton was Shine on Rainy Day. And then it was after that first tour, you know, opening with 15,000 people out there that we went in and made Providence Canyon. And and that was a conscious, intentional decision to go, all right, here are these songwritery songs. Now, how do we put some rock music around this to where when we're opening for, you know, and there's 15,000 people, 20,000 people out there, how are we gonna get, like, get them immediately? And so yeah. I, I, I do not try to ever let that change lyrically. It's mm -hmm. only gonna be musically yeah yeah well let's let's dig in a little bit more on the most recent album keep them on their toes um i understand that you worked with uh brad cook on that record who's who's really known for producing like bon Iver, you know more than working with you know country guys um and i guess that was really your first full-length album that you hadn't done with with dave so it, i'm guessing that was a real kind of different experience talk about going into the studio with you know this batch of songs that you decided to to do for this record but kind of having a, a different team different environment and in what way did that kind of make it a, a different process for you well i was a fan of um brad stuff of the his golden messenger records that he's produced mm -hmm. and i didn't know that it was brad until later um brad and i met during he liked Shine on Rainy Day. I don't know how he ever heard it, but we were playing in Raleigh one time, sometime around that, that same 2017 time period. And um, he invited us, to, me and the band, to stay at his house and save money on a hotel. And we just kind of got close. And then over the years, we just always stayed in touch. And uh, the more stuff he would do, the, I was just like, and when we jammed at the Pickathon Festival, um, they were playing there. It was a, he's just a cool dude, and I love the music that he makes. And uh, yeah, so when I got ready, I had all the songs for Keep Them on Their Toes, and, I, and it's the first time I ever had all ten songs that I knew were going to be for one record. And um, actually, Dave and I tried to get together, and we couldn't. Uh, I'd either be on tour or he would be in the studio with somebody, and uh, 
Brad and I had been in touch all this time, and we had flirted with the idea of making an album together. And so I really wanted to get it made. And I just called Brad, and he said he was in. And so we did it in Durham, North Carolina, which was so cool. I wanted to do, even if I'd have done an album with Dave, I would have wanted to do it outside of Nashville. I just wanted to get out and do something different. Yeah. And so from the time I walked in, there was this little studio that he had in this little shopping center, and this little abandoned shopping center outside of Durham. And... You know, we get there every day, play a couple times through the song, and um, it was awesome. It was, it was a lot like working with Dave, you know, in, in a different kind of way. But but so I can't really explain it. It was awesome. Brad's yeah. awesome. And um, yeah. I can't imagine doing it with anybody other than him. And um, hmm. we actually were finished with it in December of 2019. And... Um, it took forever to get it out, and we didn't know if we were going to put it out because of the the year we had last year. Yeah. And um, but as the year progressed, the more relevant some of those songs got. So mm-hmm. we figured yeah. we should get it out. Well, for a guy who doesn't like to tour, that's kind of uh, perfect for you. Like, oh dang, man! It I guess we perfect. can't go out on the road, but let's Dude. put out that record. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> I know. I, I, not everybody, you know, of course, was that fortunate, but it was a wonderful year to me. Right. to uh, still make music. I produced some records last year. I've never done that before. And um, Adam Hood had produced his album. It'll be out sometime. We did it at Capricorn, actually, which was really uh-huh. cool. Yeah. And, um, and then, yeah, I didn't have to tour last year. I got to be with my kids, still making music. Yeah, so yeah. Not too bad. Very cool. Uh, well, speaking of your kids, the uh, title track, for Keep Them On They Toes uh, is a song that is like advice to your son, as I understand it. And, and I believe that's a song that you wrote with your wife. Um, and I'd be curious, how is have you guys collaborated in the past, or how did that come about that you wrote that song together? We have, um, not seriously, but we have wrote some songs before that song. This song was... It was the first night that we had off as after Tuck was born, my son. And so my folks kept the kids, and we just kind of hung out on the back porch. And I had started that song, and the way we chose to hang out and have some drinks was to dig in and finish that song and write it together. And Mm -hmm. um, that's what we did. And she's just, Lane is a uh, very intelligent person and she's got great taste in music and she's got really good songwriter instinct and um so it's it's really no different than writing with anybody yeah and uh it may may even be easier because i don't feel any pressure with her it's just seriously for the song there's no agendas and nobody's trying to get whoever their big rock star buddy is to record any songs or anything so yeah We're just able to sit down and do what's best for the song. If you ever grow up, one thing you'll find Most people that you meet are just about out there, man They try to tell you how to live They try to tell you how to die They tell you don't get too low, but don't get too high best thing you can do is 
Don't listen too close Walk on to your own Keep them on their toes there's a couple songs on the on the record. Um, Soapbox uh, is one of them that says, uh, "I don't preach no tricks, don't talk politics. I'm just a casual singer holding my stones and my sticks. If I've got a problem, my job is pour my heart in a song." Um, and you know, I listen to that song or, or a song like "Shut Up and Sing," which I believe is is kind of about the relationship between artists and and you know folks on social media. We do live in a world where where people are under a microscope because of social media. We have more access than ever before to artists and their thoughts. And, you know, whereas a lot of your heroes, you know, people like Chris Christopherson in the 70s, all we knew about them was what we learned about them in, in their songs. Now it's like, you know, everybody knows everything. And I hear in those songs... Um, maybe a bit of frustration with, with that, uh, with, with the way things are in that regard and, and the way that, you know, people perhaps get put under a microscope in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, I just think that, um, not just for artists, but everybody, you know, I can remember, and I don't know how old you are, but I'm sure you can remember. I caught the tail end of it. I was born in 86 and I can remember the old world where not everybody was connected through a cell phone all the time. You know, on a Friday night, there were certain spots that you know that some people might be at, but you didn't know if they were there for sure, so you had to ride there and see what was going on. And you go, oh, man, (laughs) this is what we're doing tonight. And not everything was known at all times, you know. You didn't know people's thoughts. And, uh, you know, used to, there was a a time when if you had something bad to say about, a corporation or about anything you had to take the time to sit about somebody about anything you had right. to take the time to sit down find a piece of paper find a pen write it all down edit it then you had to find an envelope and you had to fold <laughs> that that letter up in an envelope and you had to find a stamp you had to put a stamp on it then you had to walk it to the mailbox and then you had to wait a few days for that letter to get to that person to see what, and then you had to wait for them to even respond. Right. And in the amount of time that it took to do all those things, you might have reconsidered your first initial whatever bad thought you had. You might yeah. have reconsidered it all by that point. And nowadays it's just it's real easy to go, here's my first thought, and I'm pissed, <laughs> and just <laughs> put it out there for everybody to see. And, you know, I grew up with, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say it at all. And, uh, <laughs> right. and so... I, not that that's always should be the case. Sometimes there are many things worth fighting for, you know. Right. I, I just, I'm not even in, in, in bigger themed deals, but, but like anything. I'm, I'm so much better. I'm so more articulate when I can sit down and write a song about whatever than I am. I'm just not a very good confrontational person. I have a hard time arguing. I'm just, hey, you know what, you win. I don't know. You know what I mean? It's what <laughs> right, I don't. Right. But I, I would rather sit down and like really process it. It's just the way my brain works, and write a yeah. song about it. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, last but not least, uh, I want to ask you about "Little Stuff," which is the the closing track on the record, and and one that I've heard you say is uh, is one of your favorites. Talk about that song and and why that one's particularly special for you. Um. Well, it's one of those that the chord structure was kind of strange and sort of surprised me 
when I started playing it. And I always feel like if I surprise myself, then perhaps it'll surprise somebody else. Um, hmm. That song was all, uh, you know, exactly. I, I actually, between you and I, ate some mushrooms, and I took a trip <laughs> down to a river, and then I took a trip at the river. And uh, and if you've ever had any kind of experience with psychedelics, you know, it, you always, even a bad trip, you kind of always come back the next day from it, whatever it is, and you go, man, it's just all so simple. We're just all the same thing, and we're all so connected, and it's it's just the littlest thing is the most important thing, you know, hmm. and, and that is us. It's our love. It's the fact that we get to just live it all is so crazy hmm. and uh and that's and it's the littlest thing that we're even just brief the fact that we get to experience life you know is is just and i don't i think i don't know if anybody ever takes the time to just go ah you know what that's that's true <laughs> that's, i'm just <laughs> glad to be here and uh and if we all did that you know we would take care of the other people also experiencing this life and we would yeah you know, it just wouldn't be so hard to fathom loving, you know, and, you know, and they're just, there's, there's bad stuff. Uh, you know, even having kids, you try to explain to your kids when they ask you, well, why can't I do this? Or why, you know, like, why can't I talk to, you know, somebody, a stranger or something, you know, and you go, well, you know, there are bad people. There are bad things that happen in this world and we can do what we can to try to prevent that stuff. But some of it is just completely out of our hands. So the best that we can do is just, and I think is the first baby step, is to appreciate the fact that we live it all. And if we take that baby mm. step, perhaps it'll lead to other steps that'll, I don't know, make things better. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know anything, yeah. man. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just traveling around myself. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, I thought I ought to might just practice that. Keep you light-lipped and a tight grip On all the good folks that you love Let the rain go, chase the rainbow There's a lot of truth in all that little stuff Ain't that enough? Man, uh, thanks for for spending a little time with us today and sharing a bit about those travels and uh, and your development uh, as a writer and an artist. It's great to just get a little insight into your uh, career. Um, Keep them on their toes is a is a great uh, record. So I want to encourage all our listeners to go check that out on Spotify or buy a physical copy even on Amazon or wherever you get your music. Always good to to grab the the physical music nowadays. Um, but thank you so much, Brent, for, uh, for taking the time. Oh, Scott, thank you very much. From the quietest corner of the Magic Kingdom in Disney World, this is Brent Cobb <laughs> signing off. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, man. Awesome. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. 
Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.